and welcome to another candidate interview. Today we have the pleasure of having with us Congressman Diane Black, who represents uh, uh, the uh, Gallatin area and all around uh, the 6th Congressional, Congressional District. District. All the way over to the timeline. Absolutely. Well, we yeah. thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, we also have in the room Michael Anastasi, who is our Executive Editor and Vice President for the USA Today Tennessee Network. Uh, and today we're going to have a discussion about uh, why Congressman Black is running for re-election. And for those viewers who are new to Tennessee and also uh, who are viewing us, a little bit about yourself. And would you sure. tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself and your journey and, and what led you to Congress? Sure. Well, I'm not originally from Tennessee, but we moved here uh, almost 30 years ago now. And we love Tennessee. It was back in 1998 when I was still working in healthcare, because of course I am a nurse, that I saw the results of what was happening with um, TenCare. And TenCare, of course, was the pilot project for uh, the single-payer system. And I saw how it was impacting uh, both the cost to the state, but also probably as importantly, maybe even more importantly, the, the quality of care that was being given to the patients. And I had never run for office before and decided that I can step my toe into this water and perhaps um, have a voice that will be one that's actually in the system and understanding it and then helping to uh, shape or even repeal what was happening in the state of Tennessee. As all folks know, it was a system that could not really be fixed. Uh, we ended up taking it back to a Medicaid-only program uh, with a, a portion of that for people that have pre-existing conditions, which unfortunately, because of Obamacare, um, the state had to repeal that. They couldn't meet all the criteria of those various levels of bronze, silver, and, uh, and gold. And so 28,000 people lost their insurance at that time. Uh, just in one day, the insurance was gone. But moving forward, uh, having served in the state legislature and working a lot on health care issues here, along comes Obamacare, and I'm looking at that thinking, oh, my goodness, I've already been through this at the state level. I think I could have a voice and want a voice of experience by running for Congress. And I did so in 2009 and started serving in 2010. And that's really what brought me uh, to serving at the, the federal level. And uh, you came in as the Republicans swept the House of Representatives again. Uh, what was what was that impact? How did you feel that you could be an impactful member of Congress once you, you stepped mm -hmm. in? Well, that was a big class, and I think one of the biggest classes in the history of this country in the, on the Republican side. And so finding a way to be sure that your voice was going to be heard and that my what I felt like were my strengths in health care. And I was very fortunate to be put on the, the Ways and Means Committee um, unfortunately, I did not get chosen to serve on the health subcommittee at that point in time because there were people much more senior to myself. And so I served on some of the other committees like the Oversight Committee. I was actually put on the Budget Committee as well as a member of Ways and Means. Ways and Means has three individuals that get assigned to the Budget Committee, and I was one of those people. And so I got to learn the budget very early on. Um, being on Ways and Means really helped me with big issues that are very important that come through that committee, so taxes and health care, um, dealing with Social Security and Medicare, all of those things. And so I've had an opportunity, even though I was in a very large class, um, to be put in a pretty good position of having a voice in Congress. And that's been exciting for me because if I'm going to be there, I want to get things done. Um, I'm a, a solutions-oriented person, and I, I like to find the problem, find the issues, and then find the solutions for it. And I've had the opportunity to do that. What a blessing for me. Could you talk a little bit about over these last six years? What are you proudest of? 
Well, probably um, the things that I have done in healthcare, again, uh, healthcare being my forte and being able to have a voice in healthcare. So one of those was right out of the gate. Um, I actually did read the Affordable Care Act, and I found a glitch in the Affordable Care Act, which actually saved the American taxpayer $13 billion, and it was actually the first piece of legislation that um, took uh, the Obamacare law and repealed a piece of Obamacare law. I was very fortunate in that even my Democrat colleagues agreed with me that that was a glitch and the president signed it into law and saved $13 billion. Since then, continuing to work to find ways that to make insurance um, affordable to people and at the same time making sure the quality of care is there is something that I've been proud of. And one of my proudest bills recently is a bicameral bipartisan bill called Connect for Health Act. And what it does is it um, looks at telehealth, which is, of course, so big in today's age of how we can use the modern technology to be sure that we give the best quality of care and at the same time, if that can happen, to save the cost. And so for Medicare patients right now, telehealth is not covered. So think about the rural areas that I have in my district in particular. And uh, seniors being able to stay in their home and being able to be monitored in their home, uh, being able to have that contact with their physician, and the quality of care goes up and at the same time the cost of care goes down. Wow, you can't have anything better than that. Increase the quality, decrease the cost. We all want that. So um, the Connect, Tennis, or Connect for Health Act is a, a big accomplishment for me to this point. We have not had it passed yet, but because of the amount of strength that we have, bipartisan, bicameral, uh, I see this as something that is going to be moving forward. I think also the thing that I would like to mention is that our state, when we um, had the 10 care program come into place, we gave up the disproportional share of, of what money came from the federal government to help with those that are are coming to hospitals and aren't able to pay, so what we call uncompensated care. When TenCare was dissolved, we did not get that disproportional share back, and so hospitals have really been in a difficult place with uncompensated care, uh, really hurting them to the point where some of the rural hospitals in particular have had to close down. And I was able to get that restored for the next 10 years for our state, and I'm very proud of that because that has really helped not only the hospitals be able to afford it, but for those people who show up that really cannot afford the care to be able to get that care and know it's going to be compensated. As a body, uh, Congress has been frequently criticized for uh, not getting things accomplished. Uh, and, and you mentioned some of the work that you've done that has. Um, uh, and, this, and this is, you know, each side pointing fingers at each other. Uh, how, as a nation, can we get past that? And should we get past it? I guess that's the first question. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you think needs to happen? Well, I believe that there are times that we work together, and Connect for Health is one of those, where it is bipartisan and bicameral. And I think that we need to try to do more of that, to make sure that we are working together to get accomplish what this country needs. Obviously, when we have a country that is stale and the economy is not moving and people are frustrated, it is up to Congress to make sure that we're doing the kinds of things that we need to do. Now, there are some deeply held beliefs that 
frankly, I'm going to just be out there fighting for, like fighting for life and fighting for conscience protection that may be hard sometimes for us to come together. But I think where we can come together and show uh, the strength and move this country forward, we need to do that. And working together is important. Now, um, you frequently talk in, in news releases of, of your uh, experience as a nurse, uh, mm -hmm. which is you talk about the, the passion that you have for health care. I was wondering if you could go to an issue that is kind of a federal state issue. Ensure Tennessee was not mm -hmm. adopted by mm -hmm. the uh, by the Tennessee legislature. Uh, it was something that had been negotiated by Governor Haslam and mm -hmm. um, the Health and Human Services Department. And now Senator Alexander is working on a bill that would allow people to use their subsidies in the exchange outside of that exchange itself. Mm -hmm. um, what are your what would your contribution, your ideas be to try to address that issue of the gap? Yes. Of uninsured people, uninsured working poor people in Tennessee. I'm going to point to something that I have been working on with my conference for actually the last eight months, and it's called A Better Way, and it is our blueprint and plan for six different areas, and one of those is how would we reform or it, repeal and reform Obamacare, replace it with something that is actually more patient-friendly. And that um, is in this book, and I, I would encourage people to go online and actually look at it and see the kinds of solutions that we see out there. Um, look, we know how difficult it is for people right now here in Tennessee, where you have Blue Cross and Blue Shield that's pulled out of the um, marketplace, and we have 73 of our counties that will only have one choice of purchasing health care. We see a 62% increase um, in the cost of insurance that the, uh, the, the Department of Insurance has uh, said yes, that the insurance company is going to be able to raise the cost of their premiums by 62%. This is not working. I've said it from the very beginning. It is going to self-implode, and it is doing that. And as it does, it's leaving a path of destruction behind. And we need to find ways to get back to a marketplace where there's competition. Get rid of all those government mandates and allow you, David, or myself, if I'm a healthy person and I want a health care savings account rather than a full medical complement, I should be able to have that. Under Obamacare, you don't have that choice. So let's get back to the marketplace and give people choices at the same time, making sure that we are protecting people who have pre-existing conditions, just like they did here in Tennessee with the Cover Tennessee that had 28,000 people who liked what they had and in one day lost their insurance. Let's take a page out of that playbook because it worked, mm -hmm. and let's reform it so that this will be something that is usable by everyone. Now, related to mandates, do you oppose an individual mandate to require Americans to buy health insurance? I do. I don't think that we should be requiring people to do that. Um, I think we should actually look at a lot of other ways that we can make sure that people that are in, especially the rural areas that don't have as much service, with health departments. I commend this governor for um, upgrading a number of our health departments, especially in my rural areas, where you go into these health departments and you can get simple, decent care there. Look, I was raised in, in a, in a a community where we didn't have, my parents didn't have a lot of money. We went to the health department to get our immunizations for going to school for when we had a cold. There are ways to take care of people that are uninsured, and we can do that by looking at a myriad of opportunities that all really are out there. It's just putting them together and putting them in a package so people can see, where do I fit the best? Where can I afford? Where can I get the best health care? So a lot of those people now will show up in an emergency room. Mm -hmm. And are you um, uh, saying that 
if, if this is rolled up, these kinds of options that you spoke of, and, and you know, the community is better aware of them, that, that would mitigate um, a large chunk of those people from going to the emergency room because they're aware, they know of emergency rooms because that's what they know, mm -hmm. right. but they're not aware of all these other options. Right. And, and Michael, you bring up a very good point, awareness, because when um, tank care was put into place, a lot of the money came away from those health departments that were a resource that people used up to that point in time. And when that money from health departments was pulled away, the health departments, I won't say that their care went down, but people didn't look to them for their care as much. And now that we're bringing health departments back up to be state-of-the-art, um, people are aware of it. I'm actually told out in some of my rural areas where they have a brand new health department that people, even though they have um, coverage through the marketplace, they can't afford the premium, or they can't afford the, uh, the co-pays and the deductibles, they're actually going to the health departments to get their simple care, mm -hmm. their preventative care, and maybe for just minor things. And so we are getting back to people understanding that there are a myriad of ways that you can get care. And one of those is at the health departments rather than running to an emergency room, which is very costly. And sometimes you have to wait a lot of hours where you don't have to wait quite that long in a health care, um, public health. Um, one of the issues that has uh, been very important to us uh, uh, here in Tennessee, uh, at the Tennessean, is the opioids crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of those who have uh, who are running for state office have talked. We've talked to them about state efforts uh, and their thoughts on that. Where does the federal government fit in uh, combating this growing epidemic uh, in in the country? In in your judgment. I was part of the task force that started to look at really, let, let's get down to the meat of this and make sure we understand how this problem um, became so large. I mean, obviously we've had drug abuse for many years, but this opioid crisis is really major and it's across all segments of society, all ages, all economic groups. One of the things that we found that is very interesting is that healthcare providers really have been pushed into giving more of these opioids when they're caring for their patients. And you'd say, well, why are they pushed into that? And it comes from the federal government in the payment of what they will give physicians because if you've been in the hospital recently, you know that you will be asked by a nurse or a healthcare provider, how is your pain? And they have smiley faces. And those smiley faces will determine where your pain is. Now, this makes people think, first of all, that they shouldn't have any pain when they have a procedure. Let's be real, you're going to have pain. But it, doctor's reimbursement is dictated by whether they've gotten a patient out of pain. And so if a patient's thought is, I shouldn't have any pain, if they even have what an expected amount of pain is, but they say my pain is at seven, and then the nurse needs to give them more medication, what we're doing is we're putting somebody in a very bad situation where that's what their body is going to want. We're addicting their body to that. So we have been in Congress working on how we can work with CMS to repeal or to in some way um, take care of this situation that we've put doctors in, where they're being forced to maybe give more medication than what they even believe from their training that a patient actually needs in order to be comfortable and to stop the silliness of, of forcing them 
um, to do something that maybe they don't believe. And we have talked to a number of doctors, and they don't like the system, and they don't believe that this is a, the best way to treat a patient. And yet at the same time, when your reimbursement is dependent upon whether you get somebody totally out of pain, that's really not a good way to go. So I see this as being a large piece of what we can do in Congress in repealing this piece of these smiley faces and tying a doctor's reimbursement to a smiley face. Related to this question, over the summer, Congress passed the CARA Act, which uh, talked about opioid addiction. It, it changed the criminalization of mm -hmm. opioid addiction t into a treatment issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one complaint that people on the ground have told me is that the lack of funding to it. So yes, mm -hmm. so it was a big mm -hmm. step. But when it comes to that next step of being able to uh, properly fund it, mm -hmm. do you b believe that the federal government needs to do more to address the, the addiction treatment? And I, I think that is something we're going to go back and look at since this law was passed and we are hearing that. I will tell you it's no secret and it hasn't been a secret for many, many, many years, maybe even since I came into the medical field, that when you talk about uh, mental health issues uh, under which this would fall as well with counseling and so on, there has never been really adequate funding for this. And yet uh, we are seeing more and more recognition of that. Uh, we actually have a colleague, one of my colleagues out of um, Pennsylvania, who is uh, has a bill, a mental health bill, which is a very comprehensive bill. And we're moving it through the House, and I think it's high time that we look at mental health and recognize that it is every bit as important as every other segment of health that we have addressed in the past and to do more for it. Um, you just touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, your background um, is, is pretty fascinating and inspiring, uh, I think, to a lot of folks. Um, could, you, could you talk about that and how it influences you in the, in the way that you view the world and today and the way that you um, uh, uh, have that manifests in your work in Congress? Well, Michael, thank you for asking. And there were a number of years where I didn't really talk about where I came from because, frankly, I was a little bit embarrassed by other people that I knew came from um, better circumstances, or I, I shouldn't say better circumstances, but circumstances where they had more than what I did. Look, I love the way I was raised because it makes me everything I am today, a hard worker. Um, I. Uh, my kids even tease me about, Mom, you don't have to save that baggie. You know, you got another baggie in there. But it was the way that I was raised. Great parents, um, depression parent, depression age parents. They were raised in a, a really modest um, uh, time in their life as well. And so we didn't have a lot as a child, but we had a lot of love. And we had a, a, a lot of... Um, good upbringing, as they say, where my parents taught me good work ethic. And I had someone in, co in high school who my um, counselor, Richard Whiting, who has been just um, a mentor to me, even though for many years he has been um, in heaven. But he, he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And he encouraged me uh, to follow my dream, which I had always wanted to be a nurse from the time I was just four years old, my mom talks about. I didn't think I could go to college. And he said, we're going to find a way for you to go to college. He helped me to work really hard in high school, so I got good grades, and I did get a scholarship, and I went to a nursing school at uh, Anne Arundel Community College because it was what I could afford, and then went on to get my bachelor's degree. But um, being raised in that environment has made me who I am. And I, I have a heart for those who 
uh, are raised in, in less than what other people have, but I also recognize it is what made me who I am today, where I know that I can do anything that I put my mind to. Um, I know that, uh, that I can encourage other people, and I do that all the time with young people that I meet with and programs that I work mm-hmm. in where children are disadvantaged, and it is a blessing in my life to share my story with them to show them they can do it too. Do you find yourself bringing that perspective uh, to Congress where there's a lot of people who, who are there uh, who grew up in, in, in more privileged circumstances? Well, I think that it does um, influence my thoughts. And I, I will bring back again another piece of this program that I have been a part of in studying poverty and what we can do to get people out of poverty. Uh, unfortunately, when we look at 50 years of fighting poverty, we still see that people stay on poverty, and we want to know why does that happen. And so, again, um, that is one of my interest and um, one of the things that I will be working on in this next session is how do we help people to not be trapped in poverty but to bring them out and I have gone around and traveled into different areas asking people what are their thoughts what what do you think and what we find is the best way to get someone out of poverty is a good education and a job and what did I have I had a good education which enabled me to get a job and it enabled me to be able to pull myself up and to be able to um, have a good life that I could give to my children. So it does influence how I think. It also makes it so when someone talks about these issues, I can tell them, I've lived it. I can tell you what that means and what that meant to me to have a mentor who said, you can do it, and to help me believe in myself. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, and, and related to that, you, you know that Tennessee has so many contrasts. It's got tremendous wealth. And also tremendous poverty, yes. and uh, we are Nashville is the capital that is the healthcare capital of the country, mm-hmm. and yet we have tremendously poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm. What thoughts have you given to how do we bridge that gap between these extremes that we're seeing? Again, you you have to get good education, and when we look throughout the state, there are islands and pockets where the education is really good, and then there are other places where we can do a better job. So first of all, good education. And for me, about 50% of my district is rural. And in those areas, it's very um, difficult to get businesses to move there because they are rural. They don't have good connectivity with roads. And so it is incumbent upon me to do everything I can to help them be able to get more economic development in their areas so they can have good jobs. And so that the, the, the folks that are living in those communities who want to keep their children there can keep their children there. So economic development goes hand in hand with this in my district to make sure that I am fighting for them to get good roads, um, that I'm making sure that the state recognizes that uh, we have an area where this uh, would be a good place to put a a manufacturing because they've got educated workforce and good, hardworking people. And so all those things that I can do as a congressman to help my areas to be sure that the education is good and that they have economic development are the two things that are going to help someone bring themselves up out of poverty. As we're coming to the close of this interview, are there any topics that you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed yet? Um, I want to say thank you to you all because you have been good about running my op-eds and I know that we always don't agree and that's okay that we don't agree. Um, Good conversation that can go back and forth will 
help each of us to understand each other's points. But I want to thank you for that. Um, but I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have my piece and my thoughts in your paper. Absolutely, always. Thank uh, you. That's very important to us. There is one question that comes up, actually, that just came up because of yeah. uh, talking about roads. And right now, uh, several Middle Tennessee mayors have signed on to a $6 billion, 25-year transit plan. Uh, that will require a lot of help from the state government mm -hmm. and the uh, federal government, mm -hmm. of course, uh, and it's very ambitious. It may change. It may be flexible over time. Do you have any particular thoughts about about that that particular plan and how you, as a congressman, can help these mayors do what they need to do to to affect those changes in the cities? Well, the most important thing we can do from the federal level is to make sure we have a transportation bill that is a long-term transportation bill. Because if you have a bill that just limps on from year to year or just a two-year bill, you cannot plan for roads on that. And we were able to pass a six-year bill, transportation bill, not last year, but the year before. And um, we only funded it for three years. Now we've got to come back and find the funding for it. But it gave stability so that both the state level and also the local level could plan on what they could actually do in their community. So for us, giving them a transportation bill that is solid and they know where they're going is a very important thing to come from the federal government down to the state level. Any final words for our viewers before we sign off? Um, just that I, I feel blessed to serve the 6th Congressional District and uh, ask for their vote, and I look forward to serving them again for another two years. Thank you very much. We, uh, it was a pleasure to have Congressman Diane Black of the 6th District of Tennessee. Uh, please continue to look at uh, candidate interviews on Facebook Live and also on the Tennessean Facebook page and Tennessean.com. The deadline to register to vote is October 11th. Early voting is from October 19th through November 3rd, and Election Day is November 8th. Please participate and vote. Thank you.